Again, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 64, 1 through 12. And once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned in our sins. We have been, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you have been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Providence. My name is Joseph. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a privilege and joy to proclaim God's word to you this morning. Uh, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian or whether you're not sure you're a Christian, my prayer is that you would leave this place today having an encounter with the living God. And so to that end, I want to invite you to, to pray with me over this sermon, over this message. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight. Uh, we come before you acknowledging that apart from you, we can do nothing. It says in your word, God, that you are the vine and we are the branches. And God, if we are to be fruitful, it is because we abide in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would find us this morning abiding in your spirit, looking to you to fill us, to renew us, to awaken us, God to the splendor of your majesty and your glory, God, to make Christ beautiful to us. God, to see just what it is, God, that you have done for us. And God, to see what it is that you desire to do in us, among us, and through us. And God, I pray that we would see that from your word. And God, you would give us the ability to respond to it in faith and obedience. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. All right, so this morning we are, as Lauren said, we're beginning a sermon series <clears throat> on revival. But before we get into the passage that was read, I want to give you a few examples of revival, and then I want to explain to you why, as a church, we would spend any time studying this subject. In the 1700s, we experienced in our nation what was called the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was led by, or I say it was led by, um, it was pioneered by 
the ministry of a man named Jonathan Edwards in the small town of Northampton, Massachusetts. And Jonathan Edwards was a man who had devoted himself to uh, the ministry of the gospel, preaching, uh, proclaiming God's word, praying for his parishioners there. And then uh, something peculiar happened in Northampton. Uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon this small congregation to such a degree, in, in a rather unexpected way, through the ordinary means of just preaching and prayer and asking God to move among them, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon them in such a way that it literally transformed the fabric, not only of that community, but it transformed the fabric of our nation. The evangelical movement that we experience in the United States, evangelical churches that we now have, are in large part because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was experienced in the First Great Awakening. And what happened at that small church in Northampton was so spectacular that people, historians that wrote about it during that time couldn't really grasp the concept of what was happening because when non-Christians would walk into the sanctuary where this outpouring, this revival was occurring, this awakening was happening, there was such strange and extraordinary things happening among the people that they had no definition or classification for what was happening. It was described that sometimes whenever they would walk into these gatherings where these Christians were sitting under the preaching of God's word, that there were men and women literally laid over in the pews weeping and sobbing, both in sorrow over their sin and both in joy and salvation in Christ. There were men and women that refused to leave the sanctuary because there was such a palpable sense of the power and presence of God among them that they did not want to leave. They would stay there for hours and hours upon end. Jonathan Edwards actually said that he would have to step over people in order to leave the building himself, and sometimes would just leave the church unlocked as people just stayed in there and prayed and wept and asked for God to continue to pour out his spirit. But the awakening was so profound that it drew the attention of people from around the world. A man named George Whitfield came from England over to preach and to continue to perpetuate what the spirit of God was doing, and of course the awakening spread and it spread and it spread. It spread throughout the colonies, and like I said, it is uh, the awakening itself uh, is the source of much of the evangelical movement of, that we have experienced in the United States. God brought revival to Massachusetts that spread throughout the world. In 1857, there was a revival in New York City. A man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear invited people to pray. Now, I'm giving the very simple definitions or explanations of these revivals. You can read more about them, certainly. But a man named Jer Jeremiah Lanfear invited people to pray at noon at a Dutch Reformed church at Fulton Street in downtown New York City for the economic crisis that had laid off around 30,000 people in New York City. And that's whenever in New York, the entire population was only around 800,000 people. So 30,000 people being laid off because of an economic crisis was an, a crisis indeed. And so Lanfear said, what we need to do is we need to pray. And so he created flyers and he passed them around to people in the streets, and he said, I'm going to be here at this church praying at noon on Wednesday, and I invite you to come and pray with me. Pray that God might move in our city. Because Jeremiah Lanfear believed that the only way for them to experience hope because there was such depression in the city was to turn to God. And when Lanfear first showed up that first day, he sat there for five minutes. No one showed up. 10 minutes. No one showed up. About 30 minutes in it records that he started to get restless and started to stand up and pace the room and pray and ask. And then after about an hour, which is what he said, he invited people to come 
to pray for an hour. Right there at the end of that hour, just as he was about ready to give up, he heard footsteps coming up the stairs, and the first participant came in and prayed with him. And on that first day, it's recorded that there was only around 12 people that ended up gathering to pray. But those 12 people showed up the next day, and they invited more people, and more people came. And then the next day, they continued to pray because they saw that God was moving amongst them. And so they invited more people, and they continued to meet at noon every single day until after six months, 10,000 people were attending this prayer meeting. And within six months, the 10,000 people that were attending the prayer meeting were so zealous in their faith that it eventually led to a nationwide outbreak of revival that over the course of around five years resulted in what historians believe was around a, a million conversions. One million people were converted because of this prayer meeting that began on Fulton Street in New York City. It was an outpouring of God's spirit. It was a revival. The Welsh revival of 1904 was led by a young man named Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was 26 years old, and he had this growing, and he was, history records, that he had this growing and agonizing sense that God wanted to do something spectacular in the nation of Wales. And he had this vision that God wanted to pour out his spirit in Wales in a particular way, and in a spectacular way. And so Evan Roberts one day shared that with a group of people, and they kind of wrote him off as, you know, youthful and, and just filled with idealistic zeal or whatever. And so, but they, they kind of dismissed him. But uh, he kept being persistent, saying, no, I believe that God has spoken to me. And so one day he speaks to his pastor, and his pastor says, okay, they were having a prayer meeting on a Monday night, and his pastor says, okay, well, after the prayer meeting, you can get up and you can share your vision and you can share what God said to you to anyone that will remain. So basically, once it's over, you can, if anyone wants to listen to you, they can, but I'm not gonna give you the time or day to actually stand up and preach to the church. Well, so after, after this prayer meeting, 17 people stayed behind and listened to Evan Roberts talk about his vision and talk about his heart for awakening and there was such a great response among the 17 people that the pastor took notice. In other words, they listened and they began to repent and seek obedience. And so the pastor took notice and he said, hey, why don't we do this again tomorrow night? And so they had another prayer meeting. But this time he let Evan Roberts get up and preach as a 26-year-old young man. And a peculiar thing started to happen. More and more people started to show up and listen to this young man preach and share what God had placed on his heart. And they responded kept coming, and after a week, it was recorded that there was such an outpouring of the Spirit. At that time, there was around 100 people that were gathering. There was such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came upon them. Uh, onlookers said that it, 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 it could be nothing, it could be described as nothing less than uh, a, another visitation like the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost. And so revival broke out to such a degree that within two months, those 100 people turned to 30,000. Two months. 30,000 people came to saving faith in Christ. Within nine months, there were over 100,000 converts. There was so much spiritual activity and spiritual awakening in that town and in that region that police started to get laid off because the crime rate had dropped so much. Because revival was not just affecting the church, it was affecting the social fabric of the entire community. And this revival also spread around the world. People took notice of it. They came, they visited, 
And then they would go back to their respective towns and the Spirit of God essentially would go with them. The Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles is connected to this revival. You see, brothers and sisters, God does pour out his Spirit on his people in unique and remarkable ways at times. And revival is just that. It is an outpouring of God's presence, of God's spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes revival as this. He says, for, for revival, after all, is nothing but God hearing the people and answering them by giving this manifestation of his glory and his strength and his power. It is a truism to say that every revival the church has ever known has been, in a sense, a kind of repetition of what happened on the day of Pentecost. That is, has been a return to that origin, to that beginning. There is only one sense in which what happened on the day of Pentecost cannot be repeated, and that is simply that it did happen to be the first of a series. Some of us will say, well, Pentecost can't be repeated. Certainly it can't. It was a monumental time in which God inaugurated the birth of the church by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, but Lloyd-Jones says the only sense in which it truly can't be repeated is that it was the first in a series of what God would long to do in and among his people throughout history. By surveying a lot of, there are tons of definitions for revivals, but I came up with my own definition by kind of picking and choosing from a variety of definitions, and I described revival as this. Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that results in extraordinary spiritual awakening among a particular people in a particular place through the intensification of God's presence and activity. So what is revival? Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that results in extraordinary spiritual awakening among a particular people in a particular place through the intensification of God's presence and activity. When revival comes, what God does, his ordinary means of grace, are intensified and his presence and his activity is experienced in new and powerful ways that it wasn't before. Now, why should we study revival? Some of you might be a little bit leery, but I want to put this before you. And this is a rhetorical question. Do you believe that your personal experience of God's grace, love, and power in your life is currently at its peak? Do you believe that you are currently experiencing the fullness of God's promises held out to you in Christ? Is your experience of God's grace, his love, his power, his mercy, and all that he came to offer you in Christ, is it at its peak right now? If the answer is no, then you have to admit that there's something more. Revival is prayer for more. More of God's power an intensification of our experience of God's grace and love and power and mercy in our midst, an experience of his presence like we have not known. Brothers and sisters, do you not think that there is more to the Christian life than ritual and discipline and attending church gatherings 
and attending Bible studies and attending prayer meetings where everyone just kind of sits quietly on their hands and really doesn't expect much of anything to happen. Don't you believe that there's more? I mean, or was Pentecost something that was completely unique and is never to be experienced again? We can't say that because church history says that that's not true. That God desires to do more and God does do more. That what happened on the day of Pentecost, that powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the church was born and God's people were animated with life and zeal. And listen to this one, power. When they were animated with power, God can and does do that again and again and again and again and again and again in the life of his people. And he is willing to do it. Ian Bounds says that whenever we come before the throne of God, we don't have to overcome his reluctance. We have to lay hold of his willingness. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God wants to do more in your life? Do you believe that he wants to do more in our church? Do you believe that he wants to do more in our city and in our nation? Richard Lovelace, a historian of revival, said that prior to every revival, and I'm paraphrasing this because I didn't put it in my notes, he said prior to every revival, there seems to be some sort of crisis that occurs culturally or socially or spiritually. There seems to be some sort of crisis that's occurring. Basically, looking or getting to the point to where the church looks like it might be near its, its, its um, imminent end or that Christianity is in some way about to become irrelevant. And I don't know if you know this, brothers and sisters, but we are in a unique place in time right now where Christianity as we know it is closer to being on the verge of its end than any of us might realize. See, we live down here in the south in the Bible Belt. We also live in the suburbs. But if you look at what's happening in the majority of our cities, which is where the majority of our country is moving, the power, the presence of God as we know it is not, quite, is not experienced quite like we might think it is. Young people in our nation, which will be the future of our country in 20 years, are the most pluralistic, secular generation that has ever walked the face of this country or ever existed in the face of this country. The church, as we know it, save a revival might be one, maybe two generations away from slipping into irrelevance. Now, some of you are like, that's not so, Pastor. There is a great movement of church planting and all of that kind of stuff is happening. There's a revitalization of the church and there's a reform around gospel centrality and all of that. And yes, this is true, but do you understand that more people are being born, far more people are being born into this country than people are being born again? We need revival whenever the number of people that are being born starts to far outweigh or overturn those of the number of the or number of those that are being born again. We need revival. Our country needs revival. Our city needs revival. Our church revi- needs revival. We need revival. Now, I know some of you who are not from the background that I'm from, which is Pentecostal, charismatic are probably a little bit 
or you're shifty in your chair right now because you're like, uh, Pastor Court's gone. Joe's up there. <laughs> Is Joe going to kind of try and create like some Pentecostal coup d'etat or something like that in Court's absence? I can assure you that's not the case. But you might be a little bit uneasy talking about all this spiritual activity. And I want to make this very, very clear. When we talk about revival, we're not talking about revivalism. Okay, revivalism is a man-made attempt to try and manufacture God's activity among us. Revival is a manifestation of God's activity among us. And that is something we cannot manu- manuf- or manufacture. That is something we can only pray for and set our hearts towards heaven in expectation for it. And I also want to say this, because I know some of you, when we start talking about revival and awakening and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and outpourings and baptism by fire and all of these things, some of you already start getting a little bit even more shifty. You're like, oh no, where are we going with this? But I want to put this before you. You cannot, reading the scripture, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you cannot ignore the fact that God's presence and power was active among his people in a way that is absent in much of the churches today. I would submit even our own. So, if that's the case, what are we to do about it? Some of you might be afraid of emotionalism. I don't know about revival, pastor. There's a lot of emotionalism that comes with it. Certainly there is. But honestly, I get a little bit fed up with people that say, I'm afraid of all the emotionalism. You know why? No one ever challenges people that get all caught up in intellectualism, which can be equally, if not more dangerous to what God wants to do in the church. Charles Spurgeon says this, he said, I would sooner, oh, I love this quote, I would sooner risk the dangers of a tornado of religious excitement than see the air grow stagnant with dead formality. We fear things that we have not experienced. Some of us fear elevating experience over Scripture. And that's a legitimate fear. I would never want us to elevate personal experience over Scripture. But there are more than one ways to elevate personal experience over Scripture. One way to do it is to certainly claim that you have experienced things that are not in Scripture, and that's something to to be aware of. But another way to elevate your experience over Scripture is by minimizing the things that could happen but you haven't seen happen. Why are we not afraid of that? Why are we not afraid of the fact that perhaps God wants to do something more, but we're satisfied with something far less? We can elevate our experience above Scripture in a variety of ways. We can elevate our experience by looking to our traditions. Well, that never happened in my church tradition. Almost every church tradition, by the way, was in some ways shaped by revival. Presbyterianism, John Knox. Revival in the Hebrides in Scotland. Anabaptist, Baptist movements, right? 
can go on the Moravian, like you can point back a lineage of almost every major Christian denominational movement to revival. An outpouring of God's spirit. My question to us, brothers and sisters, is do we want it? Do we want it? That's why I chose to look at Isaiah 64 this morning is because this is a prayer of revival. And I'm going to make this really, really simple. I wanted to set the stage because for the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about revival. And so I wanted to make this sermon really, really simple. I wanted to lay a framework by talking about why we should pursue it. But I really wanted to look down or look at uh, Isaiah 64 to kind of help us set the stage. Someone's trying to escape. (laughs) Hopefully one of our ushers will go get them. In Isaiah 64, what's happening is God's people are in Babylonian captivity. And what happened is they were in Babylonian captivity, or the reason that they were sent to Babylonian captivity is essentially their punishment, uh, their discipline from God for disobeying him, for consistently disobeying him. And so they were sent. God allowed the Babylonians to come and to overtake them and to, to take them into captivity, to take them as slaves and prisoners. God allowed that to happen to them. And what's happening as they're in Babylonian captivity is they, of course, they don't have the temple in their midst anymore. They're longing and they're missing and they're beginning to lament the lack of God's presence in their midst. Isaiah the prophet This prayer that he lifts up is a prayer for revival. He's asking for God to come down in their midst once again. And so I want to draw your attention back to Isaiah 64. I'm going to read it. I'll read verses 1 through 3, and then I'll stop and explain it a little bit. Isaiah 64, he prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when the fire kindles brushwood, And the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Now what he's recalling is whenever God came down and manifested his presence among the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, whenever he came down in a pillar of fire, and it says that whenever he spoke, his voice was like a loud thunder, and the children of Israel were so terrified by the sound of his voice, it says that they tried to bury themselves in the sand to cover their, their ears from the power of his voice and the authority of his voice. So there is no temple present in the center of God's people at this point. So what Isaiah is asking for is he's saying, would you just rend the heavens and come down right here? Come down in the middle of Babylon. We're not at Zion right now. We're not in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon, but God, you can still come down. You can come down right in the middle of Babylon, and this is what he is praying for. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of every revival prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, The reason that Isaiah is is making this petition before God is because he knows that the presence of God among his people is meant to be the central 
and distinguishing mark of the people of God. The presence of God is meant to be the central and the distinguishing mark of the people of God. And when the presence of God isn't central in the lives of his people, it grieves him. When the presence of God, the power of God, is not central in the lives of the people of God, it grieves him, and Isaiah knows this. Isaiah knows that the presence of God is ultimately what distinguishes the people of God from all the other people of the world. He is recalling also back to the time whenever Moses once said of God, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then we don't wanna go. I don't wanna move from this place if your presence will not go with us because how will the world know that we are any different than them? You see, the presence of God is meant to be a distinguishing mark of the people of God. The power of God in our midst is meant to be a distinguishing mark of the people of God. Here's how we know we need revival. It's whenever you cannot tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the way that we interact with the world. Here's how we know we need the presence of God. It's when you cannot tell the difference in between a worship gathering and a concert. Here's how we know that we need a manifestation of the presence of God. It's when you cannot tell a difference between a sermon and a lecture. When you can't tell the difference between a prayer meeting and a self-help meeting. That's how we know that we need the heavens to be rent and we need for God to come down. Now, I know some of you are like, well, brother, have you not read the New Testament? God did come down. Oh, you most certainly did. God did come down. The presence of God came down in Jesus Christ. Jesus was ultimately, and we'll speak about this here in a minute, ultimately the fulfillment of the presence of God coming down and dwelling in our midst. Make no mistake about that. I am not ignorant of New Covenant theology. Yes, God came down in the presence of Jesus Christ, but check this out. That was the first advent. We talk often about the second advent being the return of Christ, but there was a middle advent, and that was the advent of God coming down in the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And that middle advent is the advent that we're supposed to be living in, walking in, and experiencing as God's people. The power of the Holy Spirit working in and among God's people, distinguishing us from the people of the world, making what we do as a church both repulsive to the world and remarkably attractive to the world. So God came down, absolutely, yes, he did, and God came down at Pentecost, and listen to this, brothers and sisters, God seeks to consistently come down and manifest his power and his presence among his church especially when we need it. And Isaiah is saying, God, we need it. Now, why was he saying that we need it? Well, let's keep reading. Verse four. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, who those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So the first thing that we have to understand if we're going to be a people that pray for revival is, yes, we need to long for God to come down. That's what Isaiah was doing. But the second point is that we need to lament our present condition. 
Now, this will be hard for some of us. But, brothers and sisters, I'll submit to you that, yes, it's true that God is now always with his people because of Pentecost and because the coming of the Holy Spirit. But check this out. Just because God is always with us, that doesn't always mean that we experience the fullness of his presence and power. We can quench the Spirit's work. New Covenant theology, we can quench the Spirit. New Covenant theology, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. New Covenant theology, if we continue in disobedience or indifference towards God, we can become dull and lifeless and run the risk of the presence of Jesus being removed from us. Don't believe me? Read Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. If you do not repent and do the works that you did at first, if you do not get back to your first love, Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand from, from, from the midst of you. You know what the lampstand represented? The very presence of Jesus himself. That's new covenant theology, brothers and sisters. Means that even though you are in Christ and even though you have been justified and even though the Father is pleased with you because you are in Christ and even though because your sins have been completely washed away and you need not fear judgment on the day of judgment, that doesn't mean that while we are here walking and pursuing Christ on this earth that he cannot be grieved, that he cannot be quenched, and that he cannot be dissatisfied with our disobedience. He can. And he often is. Because out of the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus only fully commended one. Six of them he brought scathing rebukes to. A few of them he actually threatened to withdraw his presence from if they did not repent. Brothers and sisters, you're looking at me like right now like, whoa, this is intense, Pastor. Listen. <laughs> Intensity the intensity that we long to experience, that we hope to experience by God's presence and power, that kind of intensity, that kind of, that kind of power, that kind of manifestation that we want to see, when it lands on lazy or dull or lifeless hearts, it brings life like you have never known. And so if you see me up here being intense, it's because I want us to experience something that is quite intense. But we won't unless we lament our present condition, and this is what Isaiah was getting at. You see, Isaiah knows that God's people aren't going to experience spiritual awakening unless we are first awakened to our spiritual stupor. He knew, and I'm quoting what he actually said, he knew that God meets him who joyfully works righteousness and remembers him in his ways. Isaiah knew that even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah knew that persistent sin resulted in what felt like God hiding his face from them. Isaiah knew those things, and so he set those things before God. And he essentially said, God, even though these things are true of us, I ask that you come down in spite of us. But listen to God's response. I'm going to jump ahead to, to Isaiah 65, verse 1. And I'll come back and finish Isaiah 64 in my third point. Look at God's response. God says to Isaiah, 
I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings of bricks, on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am too holy for you. God says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Why? Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Here's what God is saying. God is saying, you want me to come down in your midst, but you don't realize that I sought you at one point and you neglected me. The most dangerous thing, oh gosh, listen to me, please. The most dangerous thing that can happen to you, brothers and sisters, the most dangerous thing that can happen to us as a church is after God's seeking, we stop responding. And listen, you have been sought by Jesus. Hebrews warns against hardening your heart towards the Lord. Hebrews 13 actually says that there was a time or there is a way in which if we neglect responding to the voice of God, if we we neglect Christ for long enough, we will seek to repent, but repentance will not be found, which means our heart will become so hardened that we can't even manufacture the ability to repent. Again, New Covenant theology, warning to a Christian church, friends. I don't want us to be ignorant of this reality, brothers and sisters, that I think that there are some very serious things that prohibit us from lamenting our sin and asking God to pour out his power and his presence among us. One of those things that can prohibit us is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification. Now, here's what I mean. I love the doctrine of justification. I, like the reformers, I, like Jonathan Edwards, I, like men who have prayed for revival before, say that the doctrine of justification is the greatest means by which we will experience revival is preaching Christ and Christ alone. Salvation by him, by grace alone, through faith alone. I love the doctrine of justification. Don't mishear me. But a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification can lead you into a life of lawlessness and a life of disobedience, and it can lead you into a life, a listen to me, of spiritual apathy and ignorance. Why would you think, because I have been justified, because I have prayed a prayer of faith, and because I am now in Christ and Christ is in me, and because I have union with Christ, I can do no wrong. But listen, that is not true. The moment you begin to presume upon God's grace is the moment that you are in danger of not experiencing it. And too many people take for granted the grace of God. And it results in spiritual apathy, ignorance, immaturity, and indifference among his people. I'm 
Misunderstanding the doctrine of justification can cause us or prevent us from lamenting our sin as we ought to. A diminished view of God's holiness can cause us or prohibit us from lamenting our sin as we ought to. A false sense of assurance can cause us or prevent us from lamenting our sin as we ought to. Do you know what I mean by a false sense of assurance? Do you know how the Bible says that you know that you can be assured of your salvation? If you persevere. When we stop persevering, when we stop pressing in, when we stop looking for and longing for Jesus to be made manifest in our lives in more powerful and beautiful ways, when we stop doing that, that is when we need to start getting nervous. Now, I know this isn't a popular thing to preach. I know some of you are already making up your mind and be like, well, I would know that I will be attending another church for the next seven weeks if this is what's going to be happening here. But listen, I want to be very honest with you, and I, I, I feel like I have been up until this point. The church, perhaps even our church, I'm speaking of the church in our country, but perhaps even our church, I think has placated to people's pander, to people's desires of what the pulpit ministry should be like what the church should be like for a little bit too long. We need more people like Evan Roberts who says, God gave me a vision and I'm not shutting up until I see revival. We need more people like Jeremiah Lanfear who say, I'm gonna start a prayer meeting every day until God answers our need. We need those kind of people. But listen, final point, I'll make this very quick, like a minute quick. If we're going to experience revival, we have to, and this is what Isaiah does in the remaining chapter, or remaining portion of chapter 64, we have to look up to God, we have to cry out to God, and we have to recognize our place in God's redemptive plan. In verse eight, he says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Listen, friends. If we're ever going to experience revival, we have to look up and we have to cry out. We have to recognize the desolation that is around us we have to rec recognize the desolation that is in us, and we have to recognize the desolation that is among us, and we have to cry out to God and ask him to restore us. Ask him to restore his presence in our midst. Ask him to revive us. Ask him to awaken us. Asking him to enliven us or to intensify his grace and his love among us. And ironically, the thing that Isaiah cries out for Whenever he says, remember not our iniquity, whenever he says our cities have become a wilderness, whenever he says Zion has become or become a wilderness, Zionist has become a wilderness, Jerusalem has become a desolation. 
all of the things that, he's, that he recognizes, all of the, the, the issues of need and want and lack that God's people are experiencing, all of those things were fulfilled in Christ. Christ became, Christ was led into the wilderness. Christ experienced the desolation that we so... <laughs> that we deserve to experience. It would be a tragedy for us to presume upon the one who has gone before us and experienced all that we should have experienced. He experienced death. He experienced loss. He experienced the absence of his father's presence on the cross. He experienced all of those things so that we wouldn't have to. But listen, brothers and sisters, it would be a tragedy if we presumed upon that by not pressing in and asking for Christ to give us and to allow us to experience the fullness of all that he came to offer us. So I have um, put together a prayer and fasting guide that we will um, be using. You, If you came in a little bit later or a little bit early, you might not have gotten one of these on your way in, but you can stop by the connection table on the way out and grab one. Uh, it's 21 days of prayer and fasting that I'm putting before, that we are putting before uh, this church, and essentially what we're going to be doing over the next 21 days is uh, from January 8th to January 28th, asking God to bring revival in our midst. Um, I've put on here some, like, kind of the reason for it, some prayer commitments, some fasting commitments, some recommended reading on revival for those of you that would like to read. But I put this out so that way, by God's grace, we could, as many of us as possible, you don't have to participate in it, but as many of us as possible, could unify and organize around this longing and this desire to see God do more in our midst. So there are some prayer points, there are some fasting commitments, um, some scripture to go along with it, and like I said, there's a vision. So if you didn't get one on the way in, please grab one on the way out and uh, consider joining us. For If you're a member, uh, remember it's going from the 21st to the 28th. On the 28th at our members meeting, we will break this fast together. Uh, having a big potluck meal, and so we'll break this fast together, and, and even at that meeting, we'll spend time in prayer asking for God to come and to make himself known among us in new and powerful ways. And listen, again, th- today's message is really just to set the tone for the rest. Um, I don't know that all of them are going to be this heavy. Uh, I, I, I can't promise that they won't, um, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I just know that I really have this strong stirring, and I have for a while, like my own Christian life, like I said, I, I started out more in a, in a Pentecostal movement and, and kind of moved away from that for, uh, for reasons I'll, I don't want to say from here, but something has happened in my soul over the years where I recognize a lifeless and a more dull pursuit of God myself, and I've come to this point over the past year where I realize, God, I need to begin praying for this again in my life and in the life of those that I'm around And so my hope is that you would join our church in this prayer and this expectation. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us. God, that you would come and you would open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive, open our ears to hear what it is that you desire to do in and among your people by the power of your spirit. Help us, God. Make your presence known among us. Make it experienced among us in ways that maybe we have not experienced before. May this sermon, may this week be the beginning 
of a time of spiritual awakening in our church and in our midst. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.